0: What can you do in the environment that you feel secure enough to actually make a contribution? And that's being an active citizen, whether it be through something that you write or through something that you say or a person that you reach out to to work with or to just check that they're okay. All those sorts of things are about how your own membership is meaningful to others
1: Raise 1000 Voices is the podcast on a mission to raise the voices of the clever, creative and courageous women across the world. I am your host, Jacqueline Nagel, and I invite you to join me in conversations with women who will inspire and empower you as we explore just how to lift our levels of self-trust to reclaim the narrative and to use our voice to go after exactly what we want, doing it with strength, power and grace. So I would love to welcome Kim Rubenstein to the next episode of Raise 1000 Voices and I'm really looking forward to this conversation which is possibly going to surprise some of you when we talk to you about what Kim's work is and her area of expertise. But Kim as we start where in the world are you right now? I'm sitting in Canberra
0: and Jacqueline I should just correct you that I pronounce my name Rubenstein. Rubenstein. Yes which is interesting in itself but Going to answer your question more directly. I'm sitting in Canberra in Australia's Capital Territory and I am working as a professor in the University of Canberra. If where in the world are you now is both professional as well as geographic. Absolutely.
1: Geographic. (laughs) Absolutely it is. Now, Kim, I have been introduced to your work recently and you are known as Australia's leading citizenship expert. Now, before our audience switches off, let me let you all know that (laughs) in our original phone call and conversation, I couldn't believe I put the phone down. I walked out to my team and I said, I just got so excited and fired up about actually being interested in citizenship and constitutional law as a woman. It blew my mind that you could do that in 15 minutes. So for all of you listening along, (laughs) stay with us. This is going to be an incredible journey. So Kim, walk us through how you got to here. So it's kind of that snapshot overview of your career, those signature and pivotal events, and how you ended up in the place that you currently are
0: thanks so much. Uh, well, what a treat to be able to do that, although to reduce it to a few minutes is going to be tricky. But I grew up in Melbourne, Australia as a sixth generation Australian Jewish person. Wow. so in terms of my own sense of self, I'm a descendant of one of the first Jewish convicts, which is always an interesting piece of information, and I think sort of relevant to my sense of identity. yeah, and I, when I grew up in Melbourne, I spent time in a Jewish day school as well as, spending the bulk of my schooling at Presbyterian Ladies' College. So I think also that was relevant in terms of my sense of identity and connection both within the Jewish community in Australia but in the mainstream community of feeling like I've always felt comfortable yeah. and to both, but always being other in both. And in that sense, I think on reflection, that notion of membership and community, which is so key to citizenship issues, is something that is part of my life experience and has influenced what I've done absolutely but my time at plc also made me very aware that I loved debating and <laughs> in trying to think through what I would do professionally or what where I would what I would do at university and i know that it's a privilege in terms of having grown up in a private school environment but always very aware from also being involved in youth movements that my responsibility in in that privilege was to contribute beyond myself to the community. And thinking through those motivations, law and studying law was also something that just seemed a natural fit. But I did have a gap year and had a year overseas before I started law, and I think having that world perspective also helped in making the most of my time as a university student, as an arts law student at the University of Melbourne. And at the end of that experience, I did work for two and a half years as a lawyer. So I qualified as a lawyer. But during the time that I'd been a law student, I traveled again and did some work in a law firm overseas. I worked at a law reform commission and I, you know, just worked in ways that made me realize that I wasn't entirely sure what I would do. But one of the experiences led to an offer to do articles at a law firm And so I did that and worked for another year and a half. But at the end of that time, I realised that I really wanted, and this comes back to that schooling and influence, to do something with my professional capacity that was more than just assisting large law firms in managing legal structures. And it's not that's not important work and I don't want to denigrate people who do that, but it just didn't feel that that was the best expression for me with my skills and interests and perhaps, you know, Ethics and values and so forth. But I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do, Jacqueline. And so I'd loved that time overseas. And one of my contemporaries from high school had actually gone to Harvard to do anthropology. And I visited her over a vacation and walked through the campus and thought, this is what I want to do next. Really not sure what it would lead to, but something that would be professionally worthwhile to get a master's degree of law overseas. And the year later, with the support of some wonderful scholarships, I was back there
1: doing it. That's incredible. I actually do have to share very quickly. And I didn't go there and I didn't get there because of life sometimes derails you. But as a 10-year-old, 11-year-old, 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old, my dream was to do law and do my master's and doctorate through Harvard. Wow. So it's not something I ever returned to. But yeah, I understand that feeling of Harvard. I've actually have been to the campus since as an adult. Yeah. Totally get that. Well, it was a life-transforming
0: experience in multiple ways, but most importantly, it was where it gelled for me that being an academic would be a perfect combination of my skill set. I'd been a youth movement leader and sort of being an educator was something that I loved. And we had this sort of colloquium where we could teach our fellow master students about something to do with law, and I just had so much fun doing that. And then you know, I had to write a thesis as part of the master's and I, even though it's harder work for me because I'm a better orator despite that stuttering, yeah. <laughs> that, and I am writer that I wrote, I, I enjoyed writing and thinking about law. But the third aspect which has always been important to me and has been very relevant to my citizenship work is the public policy aspect, that as an expert you can contribute to practical things, not only practically teaching students to become lawyers but in the areas that you become an expert in that you can actually contribute to government legislation or public policy discussions. And so in that gelling of that idea, when I came back to Australia at the end of that year, I was actually enrolled to go off and do a doctorate at Columbia University because I'd realised I wanted to be an academic. But during my time back in Melbourne, the dean of the law school at Melbourne Uni, knowing that I was back, offered me a tenured position at Melbourne Law School.
1: That's extraordinary.
0: It was extraordinary. I, I called the fellow who was going to be my supervisor and said, What do I do? And he said, Kim, that is the job you're aiming for after a doctorate. Yeah. So if you look <laughs> at it now, I think you should take it and you can always yeah. come here and do further work. I've done sabbaticals overseas, but I actually never did a doctorate. And so when people refer to me as doctor, I have to correct them yeah. because I got that position with my master's. But I had a really wonderful mentor when I first started at Melbourne Law School who really. Encouraged me to start publishing straight away. So, the thesis that I'd written at Harvard got published as two articles, and then I got a small grant. And it just was such great advice because I loved the teaching. It would have been easy to sort of totally concentrate on the teaching. On the teaching, yeah. But starting the publications early was key because each of my promotions has been on the basis of my output. So, very soon after starting, my output was. Deemed equivalent to a doctorate, even though I haven't actually got a formal doctorate, and now full professor from that yeah. sort of um, range of things. So, yeah, so that's how I got to here by a series of of mixed experiences that enabled me to land on the fact that academia would be a perfect combination for the things that I love doing, and and it really has been.
1: So, what is it that staying or choosing, actually, not staying choosing that academic pathway? What is it that has gifted you?
0: Look, first of all, there are multiple answers to that. In the teaching, just wonderful relationships. Former students who I've written references for or mentored after the student experience who become good friends and who you feel that you're making a contribution to their lives. So there's that. specific. But also even in energising in the way that you just said that you hadn't thought that you might be interested in some of the things we're about to talk about. So lots of students who come to study both constitutional law and citizenship issues, not necessarily anticipating how passionate they can become about that. So <laughs> an to, to yeah. incite that in other people is wonderful. In the writing, to contribute to, you know, the changes in law and to influence thinking about key issues such as citizenship has been great, So the, and that, and some of my articles have been referred to in high court judgments, for instance, that are influencing legal outcomes. And then the third area, which for me has been particularly important, and I think that comes back to this notion of social contribution, not that teaching and writing aren't socially worthwhile, but the public policy aspects of legislation, of discussions. I mean, as as you know, citizenship has been quite relevant politically in terms Very. of many politicians who had to resign because of dual citizenship, but also questions to do with the stripping of dual citizens, citizenship, with the rise of terrorism, all these things, or all, all the stranded citizens, Australians who are stranded during COVID. Yeah. All of those things, I feel like I've made and been able to make contributions to public knowledge and discussion and mm. government policy through that academic position. And I
1: think that lens of COVID, when you just said about the Australians being stranded, I mean, I know even around you know, virtual dinner tables because we weren't gathering in person, but that was like, well, what does being an Australian citizen mean if you can't get home? Exactly. Like, you know, it was the questions we'd never thought about.
0: Indeed, indeed. Well, they're questions that I've often thought about, but it gave me a platform to remind people that you take Australian citizenship for granted. There's actually nothing in the Australian Constitution that refers to Australian citizenship. We were British subjects at the turn of the century. Ah.
1: It's incredible isn't it because a conversation I had yesterday with a private client I was really excited about our conversation today and she was like are you serious she said I went through university constitutional law was when we wanted to shoot ourselves and get out of there and I said no like seriously it's going to be a great conversation And I actually brought up with her, I said, I think some of the confusion is Australians could assume what our constitutional rights are. Like, you know, we are and sometimes I think we actually think the American Constitution is ours.
0: Absolutely. Because of all the television that people watch. That's Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I find it quite extraordinary. And that's one of the things I started thinking about since we last spoke. Yes. Now, Kim, in my world, we're working with women. We want them to raise their voice, want to empower their voices, want them to teach them how to speak out against and speak into what matters. Why do you think that's important?
0: Look, I think when we talk about citizenship, where for me, there are sort of multiple ways of thinking about it. One is the formal citizenship of the state. So who is and isn't an Australian citizen, for instance, as opposed to someone who's a permanent resident. But the other key aspect is the political nature or active citizenship of being a contributor to the public good. And in that sense, of course, women's life experience has to be relevant to any, you know, public governance or aspects that impact all of our lives. And so I think it's fundamentally important. That's not to say that all women have the same experience, but there is an undeniable reality that living your life according to a particular gender, and that might be fluid or otherwise, actually has an impact on the ways in which you you know, integrate or you relate to others or relate to the world. And the more we make that transparent and open, the better the governance systems to cater for all of our needs will be. So I think it's vital that women are active citizens in a broad range of ways, not only in terms of public governance, but other aspects of our lives that should influence policy that impacts on all of us.
1: So when you say other aspects of our life that should influence policy, what are you really speaking about there? Like if we had to sort of give like a little roadmap of what are the sort of things that are able to implement policy? because. I quite often, or not quite often, but sporadically get quite vocal about, I call it social vision won't change the world. So you can be active on social media all you want, but learn the systems, learn the process, learn the policies, learn how to advocate and how to lobby yes. if you're serious about change. So when you talk about those social impacts that contribute to shaping public policy, what are the areas that we should be thinking about? Okay,
0: so... I mean we could speak for hours about this. But
1: yeah, I'm getting the feeling this could be like a twenty-part series. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> a new podcast series. There is an undeniable reality that the structure of our parliament, for instance, influences the way laws are made. A very, very clear example. I'm sitting here in Canberra and I love Canberra a lot, but at the turn of the century, Canberra didn't exist. Yeah. There was one in Sydney. And when they were drafting the constitution, they said that they wanted to have a seat of government outside of Melbourne or Sydney. But there was so much rivalry between them that our constitution actually says that our capital city has to be at least 100 miles away from Sydney.
1: Is that what it was? Yes. Because I knew that it was like it had to be a certain distance. I didn't realise the genesis.
0: Yes, yeah, it was part of this rivalry. And as Elizabeth Evatt, one of our first women judges, said, If women had been participating in the framing of the constitution, they would have already identified that to have your place of work at least 100 miles away from where you live would have been disruptive for any family if you're responsible for caring in any shape or form. So that is just a really sort of helpful, I think, conceptual point that if you think about your lived experience, it influences the way you order things in the world. And the bottom line is that we've largely had our systems ordered by men yes, and that the gendered norms of society that have evolved have seen women largely responsible for caring responsibilities. So if we were to weave women's caring responsibilities more into the frame, not only would it free up for women a better way of integrating those in lives, but hopefully for men as well, because the other aspect of this is that there is nothing innately... Biologically required for women to be the main caregivers.
1: Absolutely.
0: And that we're seeing in government policy more, but also in what I hope is the next generation, a recognition that men get a lot out of caring roles. Yeah. And so that the more we create environments and structures that enable both men and women to be carers in their lives as well as involved in public roles, the healthier our society will be. So that is about constitutional structures. And so one of the things I'm working on is actually a project around shared representation. So Jacqueline, you and I, if we lived in the same location, the idea that the two of us run as the member for, say, Canberra, and we job share in Parliament, that would open up for so many people the concept that they might actually be able to do it, you know, in terms of the travel, that there was our turns is who travels to Canberra if you're not like me living here. Or, you know, all those sorts of things that make it very difficult for people, say, with some impact on their health, some aspect to their lived experience that makes it difficult for them to work full time. So not just even caring, but in terms of ableness and the way that structures things. All of those different aspects, if we were to be more thoughtful about more diversity in our parliaments, then the structures would need to change to enable that. And they're constitutional issues. They come down and they become what I would call active citizenship issues. They're about that political dimension of citizenship. And then just back to your question about how women's life experiences, one other aspect of citizenship is your participation as a member, sort of socioeconomic participation. And again, the gendered nature of our world has often had women in the private sphere and men in the public sphere. And how do we alter those things so that They're relevant, but also things like housing and education. If you don't have access to good housing and education, how do you become an active citizen or what impact does that have on your citizenship? They become aspects of it. And then, yeah, other aspects of that lived experience. I guess the overall message is that women's lived experience may be diverse, but your gender is still relevant in some shape or form to the way you interact with others in the world. And that should be voiced by women in the way we live our lives.
1: Absolutely. When we were having our conversation initially, you talked about the constitutional changes that Australia is currently looking at and debating. Yes. And I'd love if you could walk us through some of that conversation we had, because you talked about, you know, there's the very clear focus on recognising and bringing in our Indigenous heritage into the constitution, which hasn't happened before. I'm sitting here thinking, it's actually almost hilarious the fact that the the rivalry between male counterparts in Sydney and Melbourne created some of what, how the constitution is written. Yeah. You talked to me as well about how do we decide belonging and inclusion and who fits and who doesn't. Yes. And when it comes to the realm of your perspective with constitution, Laura, are you able to walk us through a little bit more insight into why it matters to have this active citizenship to find our voice?
0: Yes, absolutely. So, As we said earlier, the constitution was framed in 1900 and came into effect in January 1901. There were no women involved in that drafting, nor were there any Indigenous Australians. So that in itself meant that our voices weren't fully part of that constitutional deliberation. I should say that there were women who were voting in South Australia and ultimately in Western Australia, and those South Australian women actually did have an influence, even though they weren't actually at the table. Catherine Helen Spence was actually the first woman political candidate in the country because she ran to be a representative for South Australia, but was not successful in getting to into the convention discussions.
1: That would have been incredible courage to do that in that era, though. Absolutely.
0: Indeed. And in fact, she is the person who introduced proportional representation into Australia. She had gone and met with the English political philosopher Thomas Hare and had come back and promoted it. And interestingly, Andrew Inglis Clark, who was at the convention debates, who became a proponent of Catherine Helen Spencer's work, we refer to our proportional system of representation as the Hare-Clark system because of Clark. It should be the Hare-Spence system. Wow. And I'm advocating for That's another project of of (laughs) recognition for her in terms of that constitutional framing. But the fact that those voices weren't included had results and consequences. And I think that constitutions are foundational documents, not only in a symbolic sense, but in terms of the fact that it governs the laws that flow.
1: Well, it creates the framework of what we can and can't do within the laws and the policies, doesn't it?
0: Exactly. It puts the limitations on those who are in government as to what they're able and not able to do. And so in that sense, we need to make sure that they are appropriate for the day and age and the community. So a constitution is there for the community that it is governing or for the the membership of those who are impacted by the constitution. And in the same way that Indigenous Australians are not properly represented or acknowledged so too, you could say that the current multicultural makeup of Australia yeah. is not. So, I think the voice is really important as the first step because it's a fundamental recalibration of our foundational document that needs to be done. The other thing about the voice, which I really want to impress upon people, is how inspirational it is as a an expression of active citizenship. Because what the devices of the voice first came up with is a series of meetings around the entire country going to indigenous communities and asking the communities what they want from australia's constitution so that is active citizenship in its highest sense asking the citizenry what do you want from that document that's going to govern everyone so in many ways that's inspirational to non-indigenous australians about their engagement with the constitution and in fact, the voice becomes an avenue for more Australians, hopefully, to become aware of what the Constitution does and doesn't have in it, and how this is an important starting point for recalibrating the Constitution for this century rather than 1901 when it's framed. Yeah. But another example is Section 44 of the Constitution, which we referred to before, because over 50% of Australians now have a parent or themselves were born outside of the country, which means that they have access to another citizenship. And practically, Section 44.1, which deprives people from just putting their hand up to run for parliament, it's not even about getting in, just actually nominating yourself to run, you can only be a sole Australian citizen. And I don't think the initial objectives about sole allegiance to Australia really are Relevant to a multicultural and globalized world in which we live,
1: there not when we are so extraordinarily multicultural. Yes, you know, it's um. Where do you think the gaps from a? And I'm going to go women and female, but obviously there's intersections. There's yes, indigenous women. There's women of you know of how they of ethnic background. There are women of different religious persuasions. There are women who intersect with the fluidity of their gender. So all of those things, where do you think the really big gaps are that we really need to shift from a constitutional perspective when it comes to women and the intersectional women that that we are all part of?
0: Yeah. So I think it is, it's about the nature of representation. They're not properly represented at the moment. And the party systems themselves and the party structures probably need a lot more work on that level as well. There's certainly been some improvements, but we do not see those major political parties representing to the extent that the community exists, the yeah. range. I mean, we certainly have seen an improvement in this government in terms of a significant number of Indigenous people in Parliament and more individuals from a migrant background. But that needs to be across the board. And yeah. all, all I guess, political institutional frameworks need to be thinking through ways of enabling those individuals to actually think of themselves, and this is your question, about raising the consciousness of of women from a range of different backgrounds as to the value add of them actually contributing to the greater public good because there are others who also have differences and will appreciate the fact that the more diversity there there is, the more openness there is to Mm. taking their life experience into account. And then specifically, in terms of specific laws that flow from that, whether it be in terms of parental care, you know, those specific areas, or whether it be something to do with jury service, or whether it yeah. be something to do with defamation laws, you know, defamation laws have been created generally by white males to protect their reputations. Now, it's not that women don't have reputations, but the way we think about these things might actually be influenced by gender. And also from a sexual harassment point of view, some of the defamation laws become hurdles for women being able to warn other women about individuals who may be threatening to their safety. So there are so many different intersecting ideas about how law, if it's created by a particular lived experience, can often exclude the lived experience of others and our parliament is where laws all start. So
1: Yeah, and they are only able to get through on the basis of the constitutional framework, Yeah.
0: Correct. Yes. So our constitutional framework confines what the federal government can make laws about is dictated by Section 51 of the Constitution and what the states, you know, we live in a federal system. So the fact that we live in a federal system constitutionally has a great impact. Well, I referred to jury service a second ago. The jury acts are are state-based. So in the 1920s and 30s, thanks to work by Kate Lang and Diana Kirkby that I've just become aware of, The women in each of the different states and territories were lobbying for women to be able to do jury service, but they had to do it in seven different, you know, in each of the different territories, rather than a national scheme. And so our federal system and the constitutional structure required that, even though it was a common, you know, feminist motivation to have women being able to be on juries, each state had to make their own laws and had to, you know, deal with the their own scenarios to get that through.
1: I think what's extraordinary so far you've given us three names of women that most of us won't know about who have been instrumental in changing the game at this level and I think that's something that we need to know more about.
0: Absolutely and in fact that's the other work that I've been doing about giving women's voices more attention. So I have um, been involved with a project that added 50 more whole-of-life oral histories at the National Library of Australia. And I encourage people to go and Google the National Library's oral history collection and put my name in to see some of those. Many of them are closed for research purposes for a particular time. But I think about 12 or 13 of them, the individual said they were happy for those to be fully accessible straight away. And people can literally sit in the comfort of their home and listen to the interview that I did with those individuals who gave access to their interview. Wow. And that is about hearing more about these women who were, are trailblazers who have made significant contributions to our legal system. And there's a website that goes with with that as well in terms of stream women lawyers as active citizens. And in addition to those oral histories, another 50 women who we didn't have the funds to do more oral histories for, but who had been nominated by other Australian women lawyers, they wrote these sort of memoirs about their experience. So Jan Way, woman Attorney General, has written this very powerful reflection of her experience. And then other women who have since died but who were trailblazers, we've got information about them. So there are about 350 or so names there, and they're probably just the tip of the iceberg in terms of our knowledge of Australia's contributions, Australian women's contributions to nation-building.
1: I love this because it's actually it is something that and to know that this resource is available because I feel as though particularly as women particularly we're trying to navigate this incredibly complex world that we now inhabit yes I feel as though sometimes we feel as though well how do we like you know and we really need to do we really need to understand that these women have gone before us that they have been activists that they do raise their voices and to have that resource Kim thank you. Yeah, you know, um, and I highly encourage all of our audience. I know I'm going to be going and hunting that down. When it comes to that legacy impact, what is it that you would want women now to take away from the women from the work that these women have done? What current generation of women, what do you want to take them, with them yes. out of the inspiration of these women that you're speaking about?
0: Yes, well, certainly that word inspiration, to be inspired by what women have done in the past and in, as you said, in different contexts and different conditions, because Many of the younger women today take for granted so many things that weren't there. And that doesn't mean that it should burden you, but rather inspire you that that there are different ways in which young women now should be thinking about their role and contribution to society from a range of different factors, including, you know, from their own gendered experience. Yeah. And I think we're seeing that more, don't you, in terms of the younger generation taking a stand on particular issues. They do. irritate some older people. They have such I think it's support. fabulous. <laughs> I think it's about diversifying the voice and the style in which we engage. And as an encouragement to young women that this, you, as a member of a society, as a citizen, whether you're a formal citizen or whether you're actively a member of a community in which you have a role to play, you do have a role to play and mm it doesn't mean that everyone has to be out there being a public speaker. It's about what are your own skill sets? Think about your own skill sets and think, well, how can I use those skill sets in a way that helps others? And I think that the research out there shows that the more you contribute to the good of others, the better you feel about yourself. I don't know, but that's just (laughs) self-talk.
1: It definitely does. Well, it is now being proven to add to the length of our life, generally speaking. Yeah. Kim, I also just want to touch back onto the Oral History Project and these the gathering of the 350 women through that website. Yes, and we will put those in the show notes. Yes. And I know that some of those Oral History Projects you can't quite disclose, but what's what's your favorite story from doing that project? Like, what really stands out? What grabbed your heart?
0: Yes, there are there are quite a few. I mean, they're really such fascinating stories. One that I write about is actually a woman who came back to law as a mature age student and actually became the first woman partner at one of the big law firms. And she was a bit older than some of the younger partners. And one of the younger partners came down the corridor to knock on her door and said to her, look, the partners have a regular drink at the end of the day so that now that you're a partner, we should invite you. And she said to this person, oh, I like to go home and have a drink, you know, my Sherry with her partner's name. She'll refer to his partner's name. And this younger fellow took this big sigh and said, oh, the partners will be so relieved. <laughs> and then so that they were so relieved that she wouldn't be joining them even though she was a partner. But then she went on and said to me, I never felt discriminated against. I love that. And I thought how did those two stories, which to me were clearly about her being treated differently, but, and this is one of the insights I think I gained from some of those early women who did enter law, that often those early women had some connection to a legal firm in some shape or form. So this woman, her mother had actually been a lawyer as well, and one of the really first women lawyers and other first women lawyers, there might have been a family member or some connection that got them in. So from a sort of class and social standing sense, they were in in every other respect other than gender. Okay. And so that once okay. they were in, they didn't quite see the discrimination anymore because they were in. Yeah. So even openly discriminatory sort of reaction in the sense that they didn't want her to be coming to drinks, but they felt they had to, she didn't see as discrimination because she didn't really want to be there with them anyway. So that to her was not a discipline. I actually really liked that. Mm.
1: She knew herself well enough to know that she didn't want to be part of it. Yes. It is extraordinary. I spent some time as CEO of a traffic control company, which most people find very surprising. And one of the things that was really interesting was we obviously bought a lot of trucks and vehicles and equipment, and we did it through one major supplier. And they came out, the head of sales and his officer came out one day, and they have been out a few times. They came out one day and they were just kind of like, The conversation was kind of stalling. You could see they wanted to say something. And eventually the general sales manager said, we're actually here for a totally different reason. I said, what's that? And he said, well, he said, we always entertain our clients. I said, yeah. And he said, and when it comes to the traffic industry and civil construction industry, he said, we don't have any other female CEOs. And he said, and we're thinking the football and the strip clubs isn't going to suit you. And I said, no, it's not. And he was actually great. And he said, what would you like to do? And I said... So about what I would like to do. What what are you willing to do? And he said, well, we had this one idea. I said, hit me with it. He said, we were thinking limos and a day at the polo. And I said, yes. And I said, and who are you going to include in it? Because I don't want to do it on my own. And he said, we're thinking we're going to invite the wives of the men that we would normally entertain. And that's what they did. Right. And it was perfect. Yes. But it was really interesting that it wasn't until there was a female CEO that they hadn't realised that their entertainment and reward, because that's really you know entertainment and reward. Thank you for the business. Had no scope for a female participant,
0: and how misogynist, yeah, that
1: activity
0: is in terms of strip joints or otherwise, you know. Yeah. So that other layer to it as well.
1: It's also now eight years ago, so hopefully they would have moved on since then. But, you know, its it was a reality, you know, and yeah. I do love the fact that they understood that it was an issue and they came to talk to me about it and they gave me options.
0: And it shows the influence of your participation towards change in yeah. those industries, yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We're talking quite a bit about active citizenship, constitution, about raising our voices no matter where we come from. Who is it at the moment that you think is someone we should know about from an activist perspective who's really making their voice heard.
0: Oh, that's so so interesting. I mean, I think that there are sort of many layers to that. And I mean, there are the obviously instrumental people in our parliament at the moment who are doing some great work. But I think that there are a lot of younger people who are doing a lot of work on thinking through the laid what the term you used before, intersectional aspects of their lives. So younger women who are trying to use their voice to bring in their own experiences. I feel a little reluctant, Jacqueline, to sort of name anyone in particular off the top of my head for fear of offending someone who I I, I would otherwise. But there are, you know, continually the opportunity, I think, for amplifying younger women's voices is, is really, really important.
1: Yeah. What breaks your heart when women step back from using their voice?
0: Well, I think I would say that it's the fact that the structures sometimes still make it very difficult for women to feel confident in the value of of their own contribution. Yeah. So in that sense, it's really about changing the norms of expectation for people to practice more perhaps and within perhaps the educational system as well to encourage younger people, both men and women, to Think about what it is that they can contribute. So, in that sense, if there is someone who really has a great idea, just but doesn't feel strong enough to, or comfortable enough to to share it, then that's not so much about them, but about the environment that they're in that's making yeah. them feel that way. So, I guess it's about for them to also think through how they can help change those environments and get others aware of those environments to be changed so that they do feel more comfortable. It's almost like a version of your story where people stop and think about is this environment welcoming or encouraging enough of people who we don't normally hear from to actually put their hands up and certainly for people organizing public events to always be thinking are there equal numbers of men and women and ages and diverse backgrounds in the speaking order of what we're doing all of those sorts of public events people who are really paying attention to the representation of the diversity of the citizenry which is yeah. not often, yes.
1: so kim your experience and it has been through the academic pathway and leading into constitutional level and, and public policy expertise yes. for people listening to this who want to start to make a difference yes. is it just as important to start from where they stand with the smallest of ripples?
0: yes i really do think so i think it's about understanding yourself like at the beginning when i was reflecting on that starting point for me being Jewish in a non-Jewish world and that sense of otherness and and inclusion at the same time, that capacity to feel both a member but also different, that that is a healthy thing. To You don't yeah. all have to be the same. And it's about the respect that you provide to others and others provide for you to listen to what it is that you think that you've got to contribute. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I'd say for each person, it's not about all being the same. It's about What can you do in the environment that you feel secure enough to actually make a contribution? And that's being an active citizen, whether it, it be through something that you write or through something that you say, or a person that you reach out to, to work with, or to just check that they're okay, all those sorts of things are about how your own membership is meaningful to others.
1: I love that. I love that so much. Kim, we definitely could talk for a long time about all the things that we could embrace and empower each other with when it comes to this realm. But I just want to move into now because we're running out of time and, as I said, because the conversation could keep going. <laughs> I just want to actually, there's some questions we went through with all of our guests. And the first one is, are you a book or a podcast person or both?
0: I'm a book person.
1: You're a book person. I am. You can, for those um, listening on, <laughs> you can't see behind me, but there's a lot of books and that's just part of my library. Yeah. Behind me, I'm obsessed with books. What book stands out for you that is like you always go back to or it changed your life? What what is one of those pivotal moment books for you?
0: So for me, it was actually as a teenager I was introduced to the book called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, and Viktor Frankl was a survivor of Auschwitz and I mentioned that I'm a sixth generation strange Jewish person, so I don't my neither of my parents or grandparents were in Europe during the Holocaust. So I don't have any direct family who perished in the Holocaust, but I knew as a Jewish person that if it, I had been living there, that that would have, of course, been relevant to me. And so I'd, you know, from a, I guess the age of 13, 14, I probably read a lot, you know, the Diary of Anne Frank and lots of yeah. other books. But this book was so profound because he survived and he took copious notes during that period. And the first half is of his experience. Of survival but the second half of the book is how he used it as a psychotherapist to assist people who suffer
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the central message which is to you know stays with me to this day is that anyone who can work out a purpose or a reason for their suffering can survive it yeah and he this great story of a, an elderly person who a man who survives his wife and is heartbroken and just doesn't know how I can keep living. And Frankl says to him, well, how would your wife have been? And he said, oh, she wouldn't have been able to manage. She would have been, you know, just broken. And he said, look what you saved her from. Yeah. And so that meaning immediately gave some purpose for his his suffering. And that that just, I mean, really just gave me a sense that there, as a human being, there are ways to navigate those the awfulness of humanity that we can sometimes see. And not that we want it, but if suffering occurs, that there may be a framework to deal with that. So that was really quite profound influence in, yes, in a lot of my sense of place in the world and again, a motivation to try and help others.
1: It's interesting. I used to speak to some of his concepts with Logos therapy, yes. which is the framework he used in his psychotherapy. Mm. In uh, Up until COVID, I spoke on resilience before resilience became a buzzword during COVID. And and I used to reference that a lot. And it's interesting because when we first hit COVID, my entire client base were speakers and aspirational speakers. So that was a devastating, literally weekend. We were actually all at the National Speaking Conference the weekend we went into lockdown across the country. Mm-hmm. So, you know, people lost their livelihoods and their futures overnight. And we're not the only industry and understand that. But what I did with my private clients was I got back to where I was living, which was actually at that stage was actually Canberra. And I immediately reached out to all of my clients and I said, your world is smashed. Don't worry about your own world. And I employed the stuff from Logos. I said, reach out to 20 people every day, reach out and see how they are. Let them download vent, see how you can help them. No expectation of money, no expectation of whatever just reach out and be of service to others. And that came directly out of Logos Therapy, which is serve someone other than yourself until you can actually understand how to serve yourself first. And so that whole framework for me personally changed how I looked at the world. Mm -hmm. And it also has enabled me to work with others to get them focused on something to pull them through. Fantastic. So I love that that's what you brought up. What are you most looking forward to?
0: Um, I think in many ways it's the post-COVID, although, of course, COVID is still part of our lives, but that sort of re-engagement with the sort of active citizenship out there other than on Zoom. Yes. (laughs) So there's been some of that, that, but certainly in terms of the work that I do on citizenship, there's so many avenues for putting that into practical expression. So The Voice, of course, is one of those that I'm keen to be out and about supporting people's knowledge of our constitution and this podcast thank you jacqueline is a good way yeah. for people to become more interested about our constitution as a fundamental part of our society and the voice to be a way into better understanding that yeah so yeah so i am i'm really looking forward to that i have two sort of adult kids and so family life and with my partner he and i you know really value our lives with adult kids so that's yeah. a very good place to be in kids are your friends and you enjoy spending time with them and they're prepared to spend some time with you too so all those sorts of things I feel like in my late 50s I'm at a precious point of sort of benefiting from the the years of work and experience and and child rearing and being into a stage of life where that can reach out you know in terms of serving others as well but from a very secure and loved position which is a, a real privilege.
1: Amazing, and you've brought us right into the fact that you are a sixth-generation Australian Jewish person and that you did go through school in in Melbourne, both in the Jewish sector and through PLC. If you think about the young girl you were, what is it that you still carry within you today?
0: Well, I think in that final year of school I was asked to do the sort of valedictory speech, and I ended it off with from an experience that I had at high school which had a sort of political dimension to it in that our year 10 teacher in 1980 got us all to participate in a pretend election and each class was an electorate and we all there were three parties and I became the leader of one of the parties and we had to give campaign speeches and I got so excited by the experience that our party won the election but I lost my own seat oh <laughs> Yeah, indeed. So I ended off that speech reflecting on something I learned from that, which I think is that same young person continuing through into the older person that I am now. And it was a a quote from a Jewish philosopher called Hillel. Mm -hmm. And he said, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? But if I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? yeah. I just feel that it captures so much about how important it is to know and look after yourself, and love yourself, and be centered in your own person. But if that's all you're about, then of course that's not sufficient. And from that base, similar to what you just said about your story during COVID, putting that in service of others. And if not now, you know we really have finite lives, and so yes, we do. Um, we need to make the most, not to feel that everything has to be crammed and not to be too impatient, but to be very aware that if we have the capacity, we should use it when we can.
1: Amazing. And then as we wrap up, for those of you who've loved what you have shared with us today, how do they best reach out to you and connect with you?
0: Well, um, the web world that we live in today, I've got a website, which is, you know, So I think that's easy, but I'm also at the University of Canberra, so I can easily be emailed through the University of Canberra website so that's probably the most straightforward and i'll certainly give you the links to those other websites that we referred to so that people can go online and hopefully listen them if that works for you
1: yeah absolutely and we will make sure that they're in the show notes because i know that a lot of the i guess the light that you've thrown onto these women whose names we should know will really draw a lot of us into wanting to know a little bit more. Kim, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure and I cannot wait to see more of what happens as we all become a little bit more active in our citizenship.
0: Wonderful. Thanks so much for the opportunity and for all the great work that you're doing, Jacqueline.
1: Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Raise 1000 Voices. I hope you've enjoyed the conversation as much as I have. And if you have, then I would love you to subscribe to and rate the show on your favourite platform. Our show notes, resources and links to all our socials can be found at anygiventuesday.com.au And if you'd like to join a growing community of clever, creative and courageous women who know that they want to be seen, heard and remembered, then join us in our Facebook group, Raise 1000 Voices. Until we speak again, take care and remember, you were born to raise your voice.